Hello and welcome to QSO. It's all about ham radio and don't touch that dial because you're going to want to hear today's show. We have got a special show today. We've got Gary Hedden on, if you don't know who Gary is. Gary has been involved in Nashville, Tennessee in the recording industry for years and years. He's probably mastered a number of long play LPs and CDs that you've listened to and probably have in your collection. His call sign is W8JFP, and he's going to tell us all about recording and audio and how it relates to ham radio, and that's all coming up right here on QSO. H1N1, if you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Our guest is Gary Hedden, call sign W8JFP. And uh, he is located in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, what a background this gentleman has. How are things going today? Well, it's, uh, it's a beautiful day in the country, I would say. And uh, I have a, a nice... Uh, outline of work to do and we we have had such a lovely summer i'm happy to be able to uh, do some of my work outside today so it's it's great well uh tell me something now are, are you um give me a little rundown on uh, what a typical day's work is for you <laughs> <laughs> well i've been self-employed for uh 35 plus years so basically, uh, and, and I'm a consultant in the, in the service business uh, having to do with pro audio. So whatever a client asks me to do, I say, well, sure, I can do that. And um, so I basically run a you know 24-hour kind of schedule. But um, uh, I, I could probably just outline a few activities. Um, I'm in the midst of editing um, several contemporary slash classical recordings that are uh, original works recorded multi-track digitally uh, on location up at uh, Vanderbilt University in the Blair School of Music. And um, so um, these are ongoing, very long, and uh, spread out kind of uh, recording editing processes. And uh, so I have a studio here at... uh, that I'm working in, um, it's my home base. We have uh, several audio uh, computer systems, and I spend time with me, uh, with my assistant and myself, uh, working through the scores and making micro audio edits. 
And when the artists are happy with it, then we'll mix and master uh, CD audio, uh, making the stereo stereo CDs. And um, so that's that's one activity. And today there's uh, there's a, just a kind of a backlog of things that we've been directed to do on our own. And uh, Joseph and I will be working on that. And um, about midday, I have a trip to uh, studio a project studio that's uh, being renovated, and I'm going to meet with the carpenter and the owner and make some decisions about um, the design of a little isolation booth where a musician could sit adjoining the control room to do an overdub of music, and we're going to finalize the plans for that little studio design. And that's another of my activities. And then uh, I've come back to a different computer system and work with a CAD program drawing up some designs for studios. I, I'm very busy with project studios now, we call them, or, or uh, private studios, personal studios. There's been several different names. It's a uh, it's what's been made possible by the uh, lower cost of computer hardware and uh, an audio software and most musicians that are involved in professional industry now have little setups at home, either either in a elaborate outbuilding or a basement or a bedroom or a living room or whatever. And uh, I found that I could help them with acoustic design and system setups and so forth. And gosh, there's just there's lots of that work for me to do. So, uh, let's see what else? Well, I I do a little bit of. Uh, Specialized sales of audio equipment, and so I've ordered a couple of professional uh, subwoofer systems for these people, and like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you something. You know, your uh, your 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 line of work goes hand in hand with uh, with a ham radio hobby. In that, even though they are apples and oranges, when you get up close to the uh, the two of them, uh, the the fact that the electronics end of it and the basis of which everything operates in the realm of electronics all relate to each other so uh mm-hmm. uh tell me about your ham career and i you you got uh, you know this this gentleman here is not just got he's got a very very extensive background in the recording business in the mastering business but uh you know he's also a, a, a ham and we've had him on the air matter of fact we, you you joined us live and uh, brought your, I had your grandson with you, All right? And uh, and I, I want you to kind of give us a little rundown on the ham radio side of things, and then you know bring us up to speed on the story of your grandson as well. Uh, I know everybody's going to want to hear this. Okay, well, and interrupt me if I uh, if I get too long winded here. I'm sure you're <laughs> doing that. Never too long winded on this radio show. This is one show. That uh, is dedicated to rag chewing and talking, and that's what we do here. So go, <laughs> so, so as as they used to say on the Opry, let her go, boys. <laughs> okay, well, um, I was interested in uh, music and and in electronics as a youngster in the uh, you know pre teenage years. My my dad was a scientist and encouraged me to play around with uh, electronics and so forth. I had one of those. Um, multi, gosh, I can't remember who made it. It might have been a Heath unit that had uh, you know, 101 projects on a little circuit board that you could hook up and play with and so forth. 
There was a number of those out. I think I think Night Kit had them. Uh, Heath Kit had them, and then there was some private label things that came out. Who was uh, trying well, to make this? Is mid fifties kind uh-huh. of thing. Um, I'm I'm now sixty one, so this would have been uh, fifty five, fifty six um, range. And uh, yeah, it was. I, I can still remember the uh, the color of the unit and and the uh, little feet that came off of it. But anyway, had little spring loaded uh, ways to hook things up on the surface and uh somewhere along the line um back in those days we had a, a, a neighborhood tv repair shop and i got interested in going up there and seeing what they did and the guy that ran the place was a cb'er and had uh, leftover television chassis that were not repairable and so between uh, taking the chassis home and stripping parts and and uh his uh, CB antenna, he made me a, a branch of his license. Back then, CBers actually had licenses and unit <laughs> numbers and so forth. I remember that very well. You know, and that's something that we really miss, I think, today, for even younger hams, the TV repair shops. <laughs> yeah. they, you know, I mean, they were just full of goodies and tubes and transformers yeah. and, and all kinds of things, things that related to phonographs, you know, uh, because back then people had, you know, the home console stereos, and so there were record changes and cartridges and all, all kinds of goodies, speakers and things. And uh, those shops are, are history now. They're, they're nowhere. You can't find them anywhere. And, yeah, this, uh, was, this was pre-Radio uh, Shack for sure. Well, anyway, in that, in that process, um, I don't know how I actually ended up hearing about ham radio, and I don't remember exactly how I prepared, but I do remember... Um, learning five words a minute Morse code and preparing for a novice test and taking it on the kitchen table of a of a fellow out in this was uh, central Ohio and um, there were two hams that were were giving me that test and one of them turned out to be my mentor but uh, so I, at about age gosh I think it was um, I think I was about twelve. I took my novice test, and and I think, if I remember right, and you might correct me on this, Ted, but back then, um, you only had a year before you had to upgrade. Uh, somebody recently said it was two years, but in any case, it was yeah, a WN8 both, call. Yeah, both both were correct because what happened was, is uh, uh, the first time around, uh, it was only good for a year. I mean, the okay. early novice was only good for a year, the best of my recollection, and then... Yeah. They upgraded it to where you had two years, but at that point, it was still a non-renewable thing. In other words, it... Uh, right. I, later on, I don't know if they made it renewable or not. I, I don't know, because I still see novices, and I, I'm trying to think, man, that's been years ago. How, are we, how do we still have a novice around today? But I still see novice calls every once in a while, and I wondered about that. So I don't okay, know. Well, well, in any case, I, I felt the urge and need to get upgraded, so... Uh uh, along about age 13, I think, I, I got my general, um, which was the next step up, and uh, barely passed the code. I mean, I think I had 106 characters, and you needed 105 continuous to be, you know, one minute of perfect copy. And that was at an FCC office in downtown Columbus, and was a big, intimidating, scary proposition. They all were. <laughs> <laughs> And I sat right in front of the of the big old twelve inch speaker so that uh, <laughs> I would have it pounded into my head. Back in the back of the room, it was pretty reverberant and 
harder harder to hear. But anyway, um, so that and then I, I in that process uh, stayed in touch with this fellow John Hull W eight R R J who um, was also involved in doing uh, remote recording of high schools and college ensembles of the uh, you know, choral and band and orchestra music concerts. And uh, he had portable equipment and uh, was a physicist and uh, musician and electrical engineer all re- rolled into one. Um, this was a hobby for him, a part-time job. He was full-time employed as a, as a uh, electronics engineer at North American Aviation. Anyway, uh, he saw some potential in me, and we hooked up, and I became his first employee uh, in the audio realm. And together then we did a bunch of ham radio projects together, too. At that time in Columbus, um, there was a new science center, science and industry center, and um, the Columbus group put together a uh, fantastic Collins station. I think somebody donated the whole works, but it was, you know, it was a couple of six-foot racks worth of, of Collins gear, and, and uh, we put a radio station, a uh, ham radio station, at the Science Center, and um, I think a five-element beam on the roof, and so forth. The, the call of that, if I remember right, was W-A-T-O, Tango Oscar, as I recall. And so I was a kid uh, helping with that, got more interested in the hardware, and the, you know we ran cables through from the second floor up to the roof and all that sort of thing. And uh, John Hull, the, the guy I've mentioned, continued on with the recording business, and I went out and recorded things with him and eventually had my driver's license and went out and did field recordings uh, on my own. And eventually uh, we built a studio together and then another studio together downtown Columbus, which is still in existence. So he and I were just really uh, tight for about eight years there in my formative years, both in ham radio and professional audio recording. And we did some sound reinforcement, too, for uh, high school plays and so forth where they didn't have uh, reinforcement systems. And John is still uh, still around, still running his studio up in Columbus. Um, he's in his early 80s and uh, tremendous tremendous intellect and and uh, great audio engineer and just continues to have, thrive at, at doing it. It's pretty amazing. And that studio we started, uh, we built in the mid-60s, is still actively going. I'll just drop another note in there. He, he, he still has um, two vinyl record presses in operation, which we put together. I was part of helping that in the early, in the mid-60s as well. They're still pressing 12-inch and 7-inch records. Uh, one of the few places left in the country doing that. You're listening to QSO, and our guest is Gary Hedden, W8JFP, recording engineer and audio engineer supreme in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be back with Gary right after this. 
The Light Pack Systems induction lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. Light Pack induction lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year. With a failure rate of less than 10%, LightPak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs as well as indirect costs. LightPak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. LightPak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. In this day and time, what we don't have much of is time. And if you enjoy operating and you just don't get a chance to, you need to take a look at the Trans World Antennas TW2010, and all the models that operate the different bands. Go to YouTube and put in Transworld Antennas and see how simple this thing is to set up. I mean, it is easy. It goes together fast. And, of course, that gives you more time to operate. You're not fussing around with an antenna. In an emergency situation, it is absolutely necessary. You need to have one of these. If not for yourself, for your club, or whoever it is that may get called out on a scene where you've got to operate and you've got to be able to set up quickly and efficiently, go to their website, and that's transworldantennas.com. Transworldantennas.com. There's a link up there to YouTube, and you can see how quickly this antenna sets up, how easy it is to operate. Transworldantennas.com. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com, and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. You probably own a CD or an LP mastered by this fella. We return now to our interview with Gary Hedden, W8JFP in Nashville, Tennessee. So anyway, Rich, uh, Rich Audio, uh, and uh, he and I also then, in one, uh, <laughs> one crazy Friday night, we put a two-meter repeater on the air from uh, abandoned taxi cab GE rigs, I think they were. Uh, John remembers all these details better than me. But uh, one one Friday night, we stayed up. We used to stay up half the night doing things. In his basement, we put a, a two meter repeater on the air with a you know separate 
transmitter and receiver, and within mo- moments, somebody called in. <laughs> it was like 3 in the morning, and some guy was driving through Columbus and, and got on it. And that has grown and grown and grown to uh, to where it's a, an entire system up there, which I, I don't even know the current state of it, but it was, uh, it was a very elaborate interlinked uh, system that continues on, probably with... With um, let's see, maybe I don't even remember the calls. Ted, do you know what what call that uh, that main system in Columbus? Is? No, matter of fact, I, I just R, it's probably actually his call, W eight R R J. I uh, I had looked up here just a second ago on QRZ that call sign that you gave me the W eight T O, and that is the Columbus Amateur Radio Association. Yeah, so. Kara. I don't know. Is that would that be the same? Would they be? Would they, be, would they have the same call or the, the system? That's not the repeater group. That's okay. that's where the uh, the station at the science center was located. But W eight R R J is probably the repeater call sign. I, I haven't been back in the Columbus area much since I left there a long time ago. So, in any case, um, I'm kind of putting the history together here on the fly. Um, so we're up to the late 60s with my involvement with John and, and uh, both audio and ham radio. And I got married about uh, early 71. And my general license, I believe, needed to be renewed about 1973 when I lived in Cleveland and uh, was very busy working for a, a fellow up there in a the studio. And I didn't have any uh, any ham equipment at that point, and I hadn't been on the air for a, a year or two. And I believe you had to certify with a logbook entry or something, a uh, copy that you had been operational for you know so many hours during the last couple of years or something, and I couldn't meet that requirement. So I let my license expire, and I think it was around 73 or 74 that I just dropped out of ham radio entirely. So fast forward, um, oh, let's say back up a notch here, one notch. My wife, I call her my first wife, who I married that, that in 1971. She still is my wife. Her dad was a real active ham in the central Ohio area also. Uh, for those old-timers who might remember W8RJI, Ray Williams. And he was a Mars guy and... Our system was real busy there, and there were a lot of goodies coming down from from the military to be distributed amongst the Mars members, and so forth and so on. Well, anyway, fast forward to uh, let's see, the late '80s, and my wife and I are living in Franklin, Tennessee. Here, we've built most of the house. We're still living in a trailer in the woods, but we've, we're building our house. And her dad, Ray, needed a place to stay. He was uh, Tired and, and was diabetic and needed some help just in daily life. And so he came down to live with us, ended up building a house on our property. And uh, he brought a whole Drake rig set up, all his stuff. He was a professional hobbyist and had lots of radio gear and everything and put up a 55-foot crank-up tower on this, uh, <laughs> on this house that's next to ours. And then one time got into a uh, low blood sugar incident, and uh, one thing led to another. About a year later, he passed away. He was in the nursing home for a while and so forth. 
so uh, here was this house next to our house with a tower on it, me without a license and no interest in ham radio, very busy in my audio career. And uh, so I cut down the tower and gave it to a friend in Atlanta. W3WL is his call, uh, West Lamboli, uh, West Lamboli, a very, uh, very active DX edition guy. And, uh, and I actually, we gave him the, the remnants of the radio station, uh, equipment here too, the Drake stuff to try to do something with. Well, so that was, um, probably in 1997 or thereabouts. And within about Eight weeks, eight months of that time, when I tore this whole thing down and and put it away, I went to the Huntsville Ham Fest. <laughs> I believe, if I remember this right, this was in '98, and um, I think I went down there on a Friday or a Saturday and got all excited about doing it, and came back home and crammed, went back down and got my Tech Plus, <laughs> and. Um, Ninety-eight. So there you go. Uh, from there on, it's been uh, I've upgraded and uh, become an extra here recently, and discovered the Williamson County Aries Group, of which I am a, an assistant emergency coordinator and real active in, in weekly activities and, and uh, all of the things associated therewith. And uh, so, you know, I want to say, you know, the the, the Williamson County Group. Is an incredible uh, group of, of radio amateurs. I mean, they're like mm-hmm. exemplary. I mean, you you, it's it's unbelievable <laughs> sitting and listening to their activities with the Boy Scouts and things. And one thing I I harp on an awful lot, and eventually somebody's just gonna take me out, you know. <laughs> and that is, I, I I say consistently that sometimes I think in ham radio um, we focus too much on emergencies. And uh, the reason why I say that is because it seems like nobody's really having any fun, you know. And But now the Williamson County County Group takes uh, the emergency practice, the emergency side of amateur radio, and makes it fun. And uh, the people that participate in it, I mean, everybody is having a good time, even though it's a serious thing. In other words, the, the emergency side is, is serious. Everyone seems to really enjoy participating in it. And uh, that's not the case in a lot of other amateur clubs. As a matter of fact, it makes the Williamson County Club kind of a good example to study. You know, kind of go and look and see what's going on. And uh, and, I, and I've, I've wondered about that a little bit. Maybe you could tell or, or enlighten us with a few of those dynamics as to why it is that uh, they come across differently than, than a lot of other clubs. Well, I'll be happy to. And, and I would say that... Uh if it weren't for this community of, of, of uh, operators, my activity in ham radio wouldn't wouldn't be anywhere near it what it is. Um, I, I just you know there's there's such a depth of resource available and, and such camaraderie that if I'm struggling with a question about putting up an antenna, um, you know there's guys that will come out and help. <laughs> Drop of a hat. Some of them retired. Some of them are self-employed, and so. You know, we have we have a, a group of people that are just kind of available with with slingshot and and rope and insulators and everything else available to help someone get on the air and and do that. And that's you know that's really lacking if you're just a 
one-man show somewhere out in the woods uh, trying to be a ham. It's uh, it's a lot more difficult. But let me just uh, ramble on here a little bit. Uh, it's actually not a club in the sense we don't have uh, the club. Um, oh, uh, what would you call that? The, uh, uh, you don't have a clubhouse? Constitution. We don't have a club <laughs> constitution thing. We don't have a clubhouse. <laughs> Uh, we're just a group of Aries members who are band together, and um, so you don't you don't you don't have the the infrastructure of uh, oh you know a charter and all the other things that a lot of right. a lot of groups have. Well, you know sometimes that stuff leads to how oh, gosh I don't want to say it, over officialness maybe you know I mean uh, yeah I've I've heard about it <laughs> I have I wouldn't be part of it if it existed I guess is the, is my situation so. Well, I think that's that's true with a lot of people, and I think a lot of folks drop out because what happens is we get the, all all entangled up in Robert's rules of order and all kinds of things like that, you know, which is really not related to what we do, you know. Right. And because uh, I, I I don't know how you feel about it, but I think hams for the most part, you know, we're a bunch of creative types, and we, everything's kind of we do a lot of stuff on the fly too, you know. It's like <laughs> yeah, you know, it's just like gee, what'll happen if we do this, you know. And uh, that's really not conducive to uh, a real regimented kind of uh, uh, organization. I mean, you have to have some organization, but then, as you're saying, if you have the camaraderie uh, amongst the, the fellows that are participating, you really don't need to regulate it that much, if that makes any sense. Yeah, we're, we're kind of entrepreneurial individuals, and creative is certainly the case. And we're, you know, we're focused around being ready to serve the community in an emergency that's certainly our our focus but in order to do that then i mean that's the that's the overall goal but in order to do that it means that each of us has to have uh, functioning rigs with backup power supplies and and power sources and portable antennas and all that stuff so we encourage each other to do that and um and, you know and then we practice just communicating and we're blessed with a county government that supports our activities um, realizing it's a win-win that we're available to help and uh, they're available with the resources to, to keep us um, with the repeater system is, is uh, part of the county antenna system so we're we're well blessed with with uh, government support but are dedicated to serving the community as as uh, volunteers so it's really a, it's just a tremendous partnership, and I uh, can't say enough about all of that. It's just just terrific. So we're at um, somewhere in the 160 members kind of range at this point. Just heard a burst of noise, which might be your recording system doing something. Tell everything okay up there? Yeah, I heard a little pop on the line, but I, that was on my end. That was just a pop. I'm used to those. <laughs> okay. Well, anyway. Um, Let's see. Uh, there's another another uh, point in there that I wanted to make, which was uh, so I got a, I got my uh, general class ticket about a year after this uh, reactivation. I put up a an 80 meter dipole um, here in the woods. We have lots of hundred foot and plus trees around. There's lots of opportunities for uh, antenna. Wire antennas, anyway. That's hard to find. <laughs> Not too many opportunities for rotating antennas. But um, we had a, a uh, devastating direct lightning strike 
on that antenna about uh, five years into my reactivation of ham, and it it literally vaporized half the uh, half the antenna and half the twin lead coming down and destroyed uh, a number of computers and hardware. And this was located at my office house, which is the, the former residence of my father-in-law. And it really just put me back on my heels um, because of the, you know, it, it got into the electrical system of the house and, and you know, and there was smoke and fire and blew a hole in the wall and that kind of thing, a direct hit. And uh, so it took a long time for me to get up the courage to start over again and put things back together. Fortunately, the uh, one of the few things that survived was, a, was my little ICOM 706, which is the only rig I still have in the house. Um, it wasn't connected, <laughs> but this antenna system, um, the lightning jumped off of the grounded antenna into the electrical ground of the house, and the uh, service entrance was at the other end of the house, so it just basically elevated the potential of ground throughout the wiring of the entire place to which computers were plugged in and network cables were plugged in and so we had spits and sparks and all over the place i was glad i was not present i i you know it's a funny thing is i i really i get criticized people call me paranoid but um my hf antennas are all um open wireline and uh, recently, Matt just put one up, so it's really kind of funny. We've got crisscross zeps in the backyard with different r- runs of, of open wire. And uh, I've got a rope on my open wire. I pull it in, fasten it in through the window when I'm operating, and when I'm not operating, I drop that thing to the ground and just let it float. That's a great idea. <laughs> and uh, I'm yeah, and I, you know, and I hate it because in 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 the the, the I guess I'll say the summertime season here. Um, I don't know. Even in the wintertime, we get lightning storms here, which is strange because I'm from up north. You know, I'm like you. I guess you're from the must be around Ohio area somewhere. You were talking. Mm-hmm. I'm from originally from Detroit. So I just wasn't used to seeing, you know, thunderstorms in the middle of the, the wintertime. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I just leave the thing outside until I use it. And then sometimes I forget to drop it. And I've actually thought about maybe some sort of a system <laughs> that would drop it automatically after, you know, so many hours or whatever, oh, yeah. you know, because we have, we have, let me interrupt. We have we have a guy in our group who could design that system for you, <laughs> with, you know, the, with the actuators to do it. Well, you know, the thing of it is, though, is that uh, working in the broadcast business for so long, uh, lightning is like so. It, I mean, there are no rules. You know, the minute the people think they got it figured out. You know, it will it will violate the laws of physics. I mean, you know, to do something, and uh, it's so unpredictable. So, I mean, there is really no. I you know, when say people say lightning protection, I just laugh. I mean, you know, there is no such thing as lightning protection. I mean, you can take certain precautions and stop you know a secondary EMF from coming into your shack. You know, with arresters and surge protectors and stuff. But when that stuff hits, if it's a direct hit somewhere. All bets are off. Like I said, oh, absolutely. In this, in this case, let me just tell you this, uh, and I'll, I'll say more, a couple of things more about lightning because we live uh, with poplar trees, which are very moist. We've had uh, lived on this land for twenty-three years, and there have been four, let's see, five actual um, direct hits on trees that were within 
within a few feet of our home, you know, within a hundred feet of our home. Um, so we're we're familiar with it. And this particular one that that hit my dipole um, was not even on the on the weather alert. It was a little teeny thunderhead. Um, we were about ten miles away when it passed through, and um, I mean, it, I look back on the on the radar history afterwards. It was just a little speck on the on the uh, local radar. Just you're listening to QSO, and our guest is Gary Hedden, W8JFP, recording engineer and audio engineer supreme in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be back with Gary right after this. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. The light pack systems induction lights, manufactured in the USA by a severely disabled workforce, uses a unique physical principle of light generation. Light pack induction lighting is a breakthrough for professional, general, and special lighting applications. System lifetime is rated at 100,000 hours, or about 20 years, based on 5,000 burning hours per year with a failure rate of less than 10%. Lightpak offers substantial savings in direct maintenance costs, as well as indirect costs. Lightpak offers lighting solutions that provide a better quality of light with a 66% energy savings. Also, lasting up to five times longer than standard lighting options. Lightpak's quality shines through with their standard 10-year warranty on all products. Call today for your free demonstration. Go to their website, lightpacksystems.com. That's lightpacksystems.com, spelled L-I-T-E-P-A-K-S-Y-S-T-E-M-S, lightpacksystems.com. It operates 20 through 10 meters. It's stealth. It will keep up with any three-element beam and any vertical that you have on your property. But if you can't have a three-element beam or a vertical on your property, you can still have a TW2010. It is stealth. It disappears. We tried to take pictures of it, and we had to move the thing around because it hides so well. There is no compromise in performance with this antenna, and it's portable. You can take it with you on vacation. It's, uh, it's quite unique. They make several flavors of this antenna, however, if you want to operate 80, 40, 60, 30-meter band, it's all there. Go to their website and check it out, transworldantennas.com. 
That's transworldantennas.com. And check out the special pricing right now. At QSO, we've got a new prize closet, and we've got some interesting things going into that prize closet. Be sure and write us and send us that email that says, I want to win. Put that in the text somewhere in that email and go to our website, qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com and send us an email. Tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're listening, how the signal's coming in, or if you're listening by podcast. But be sure and put on that email, I want to win, because we're going to have some really, really neat things to give away. We'll be putting those things up on the website and telling you more about them on the air. Be sure and don't miss out. Send us an email and put in there, I want to win. Go to qsoradioshow.com. That's qsoradioshow.com or tedrandall.com, R-A-N-D-A-L-L, and we'll look for your email. You probably own a CD or an LP mastered by this fella. We return now to our interview with Gary Hedden, W8JFP, in Nashville, Tennessee. Went over our home and <laughs> zapped this thing, and that was the end of it. There wasn't any rain, rain associated with it. Um, it was just a you know fluke. Deal. Now, let me tell you one other thing about Middle Tennessee. Uh, we have this great concert hall downtown, uh, world-class new concert hall that is uh, tremendously built from an acoustic standpoint. And I was talking with the acoustician who designed it um, about the noise immunity for this room, the audio noise immunity. And he said that when he did a survey, he found out that Middle Tennessee has the highest number of thunderstorms of any place in the country. Oh, I would so the believe whole deal that. Was, uh, he had to design uh, the concert hall to to deal with thunder, which was a very significant amount of engineering to you know, make it quiet and immune to the thunder. So we have lots of lightning strikes here. Uh, lightning is associated with thunder, I understand. <laughs> Well, you know, it's a funny thing because I recall, I mean, this has happened a couple of times, uh, and I don't understand it at all. This is a phenomena I have never seen before, and I've talked to folks that, that have never seen this either. But I have been in a building, and all of a sudden, you will hear this horrendous uh, clap of thunder. I mean, and that's exactly what it is. It has the typic, the very, very typical crack and then the, you know, the delayed um, snap, crackle, pop kind of thing, but the and, and, and the explosion kind of sound. I mean, it's definitely thunder. I mean, there's no doubt in your mind. And um, the lights will maybe flicker inside, you know, or whatever. You go outside, not a cloud in the sky. <laughs> and I'm like, what is that? You know, I mean, I mean that is really disturbing because there's really no way to, you know, I mean, there's like what in the world. But now I've talked to some other folks that, that live around here, and they say they've experienced the same thing. They've noticed the same thing. I think the average person doesn't notice it. They hear it, and it just doesn't register. You know, I mean, it's just, oh, it's thunder. Um, but if you're into amateur radio or broadcast radio and something like that happens, I mean, that will make you scratch your head for the rest of the day. You know, yeah, and, well, I haven't experienced one of those, but but I certainly do hear the weather service speak of if you can hear thunder, you can be hit by lightning. So, you know, if it's within audible range, then you're you're in the zone where it could 
can happen right there. The thing I don't understand about lightning, though, of course, it's always looking, I guess, I've been told, and I believe this is true, it's always looking for the best ground. So if the power company ground looks better than a ground that you're using outside or something, it's going to go through the house looking for that power company ground or through the building or whatever. And uh, I I guess the... um, the thing is, though, is is when it does say enter the building looking for the power company ground, it's really weird to me to see like you know ten pieces of equipment in a rack, and only one gets completely fried. I mean, the transformer smoked; everything in it is just blown, and all the rest of the stuff in the rack is fine. You know, I I that is what I see that and I like doesn't make any sense. You know, but that's what I say when. Well. When it's lightning, all bets are off. The laws of physics, throw them out the door, you know, because uh, I'm sure the laws of physics are into play, but I don't think there's a human on Earth that can explain why. You know. <laughs> well, I'll say one more thing about that, uh, what seems to be one blown-up piece in the rack. Um, having, having spent about four months putting my systems back together after this hit, uh, you find out, you know, a few months later, can you, modem is just acting weird and you open it up and get out the magnifying glass and see a little spot where where the chassis and the card arc together during that hit and eventually uh you know something failed and either it was a little warm or whatever but i found little spots of arc over throughout you know, i had about 13 computers involved and they were all powered down and everything but um I, we had we had uh, spits of, of lightning corona come off of the carpet tack strips and arc into uh, a speaker cable that was nearby, just laying on the carpet, and punch holes in the insulation of the speaker cable oh, and, man. Fry, and oh, fry the speakers. Um, <laughs> but you look down there, and there's, there's like, you know, a hundred little pinholes in the speaker cable from, from where the tips of the nails of the carpet tack strip became energized <laughs> you know there's one thing i found though I, I don't know you every once in a while you find a product that you really like and it isn't that these folks advertise with us or anything like that but the trip light surge protectors now who who makes it trip light uh uh hang on i got one right here tell you the, uh, the isobars Mm-hmm. Isobar trip light, they're a metal box, you know, and they're usually white or black, I guess, in color. All the ones we have around here are white. And they're a little expensive, but I found that for some reason, with all the claims and all the insurance policies you get on these surge protectors, you're insured up to $55 billion of damage or whatever, you, yeah. know? you know, and those things... They just they, they sign out and go dead, you know, and then all the equipment hooked to them has gone dead, too. These trip lights that are this isobar, for some reason, these things really work. I mean, they, I don't know what's inside of them. I've never opened one up. But uh, I, I don't know why that is, but they seem to work. You may have found some, you may have found some, uh, uh, some, you know, some small surge protectors that work well uh, yourself. You know? But we've, I, once I found these things worked as well as they did, that's the only ones I'll ever buy, and I plug those in and leave those in. But there's one thing about it, and that is, if they're not grounded properly, of course they're just they they don't they don't do anything. And yeah. uh, but anyhow, well, in the audio in the audio realm, we're concerned about uh, keeping steady power, but also about noise uh, from uh, those those devices. If they're a parallel mode kind of device, they strip off the 
uh, noise that might be on the uh, on the power connections, and they put it on the ground wire. And in the audio realm, that's a no-no. We want to keep the ground really clean. So um, there's another system that uses series mode, um, series devices uh, as the as the uh, surge suppression. And as far as I know, the, the, the main the company that owns the patents and everything is called SurgeX, and that's what we use in the audio realm because it uh, keeps the uh, ground contamination to a minimum, but they're very expensive compared to uh, to the even the isobars and other ones. Well, you know, I, don't, um, I don't want to get too far off the beaten path. <laughs> no, and, but that's okay. On this show, we can do that. Uh, okay. Uh, ground contamination. Uh, I attended a seminar one time, and, the, and there was a gentleman came in, and he was talking about uh, the fact that one of the weirdest things they wound up with was when they put like thirty computers in a room or multiple computers that the switching power supplies mm-hmm. put so much on the ground side that they were actually burning up the primary wire coming into the building. Well, that's on the neutral contamination is what, what that is. Yeah, you can end up with, with the, um, especially with three-phase power, you can end up with way more current on the neutral, which normally you would think of is, is uh, if the loads are balanced and everything, you would think of that uh, the neutral goes current goes to zero, but in, in with massive amounts of switching power supplies, even you know, even just typical amounts of switching power supplies, the neutral gets uh, carrying more current um, because of the harmonics of the switching power supplies drawing drawing the current on the neutral. You can end up, and I, that's all of that was poorly said, but but neutral current is a big issue nowadays. In fact, in uh, from my understanding of uh, three-phase wiring in commercials, the uh, commercial properties, the neutral has to be bigger than the hot legs at this point. Um, so that's a that's an issue. Uh, on the ground grounding issue, let me just say one more thing about, um, because this would apply to ham use. Um, I, in the, uh, this is a combination of ham radio <laughs> and audio, which is what we're talking about. Uh, I have a lot of clients that think they need to have uh, an isolated ground system for their audio gear uh, in order to prevent noise from getting into their recordings. And in fact, um, there's a, a grounding scheme that works well, but, but the uh, whatever is in the, within a residence or, or a office or whatever needs to be really substantially tied to the ground rod that's at the service entrance, uh, which is the way keep uh, lightning from, uh, well, to keep, minimize the, the effect of lightning hits on, on the interior interior wiring of a home or business, and the ham gear needs to be tied to that same uh, earth system uh, at the service entrance. It's okay to have multiple grounds for, uh, for RF reasons, but I'm a strong advocate that, that ultimately they all need to be tied back to that single point. Where the uh, where the power comes into the building and the meter and there's the rod the required uh, rod at the at the meter base service entrance uh, all the gear needs to be tied to that point for the purpose of lightning protection more than for noise immunity so that's a whole other area which uh, I just kind of glossed over but 
Well, that, yeah. I, I, let me ask you this: What's your recommendation of if you, if you want to have a really quiet system and you want to make sure that that uh, that, that you're not you're not in, inducing things into ground that's going to cause a buzz or a hum or other noise? I mean, I hear strange noises and crackling sounds, not necessarily crackling, almost like a frying noise in audio equipment at a time at, at times. And and I've been able to trace that down to ground. But so I've never. Sometimes I haven't been getting rid of it. I don't know what to do. I'm like, what? What do you do when you run into something like that? What's where do you look, and what's the best way to troubleshoot that? Okay. Well, this is a this is an area I've I've been known as the humbuster, um, but uh, essentially it all comes down to uh, to Ohm's law, and um, if you uh, if you have current flowing through a conductor then um, there is a potential drop, a voltage drop across that conductor. So if, uh, if we look at, in our mind's eye here, this is a visual radio of uh, five pieces of gear that need to be grounded, if, um, if the ground wire goes from a ground rod to the first piece and then to the second piece and then to the third piece and then to the fourth and then to the fifth, the potential... Uh, as measured with a voltmeter, if there's any current flowing in that ground system, then the ground potential, the electrical uh, EMF, the voltage, at the fifth piece of gear is going to be different than at the first piece, is going to be different than at the ground rod itself, the beginning of that. If, on the other hand, you tie each of those pieces of gear with a single wire back to the ground rod, what we would call a star connection, then uh, then whatever current is flowing in each of those five ground wires um, comes to uh, one point, and the potential at that one point, the, the ground rod, um, is <laughs> is unaffected by the individual. Um, boy, I'm just not saying this right. I almost had it right. To, it, but the potential between the pieces of gear, then um, there, there would be um, there wouldn't be a change in the in the ground potential of the fifth piece based on what the first piece was doing. And uh, so, if if we still are, are keeping this picture in our mind of a of a star with five pieces of gear tied to a central ground point, and then you're going to connect audio with shields between the pieces of gear, um, sometimes that will set up. A, a loop, uh, a, a triangular loop, if you will. Be, if you have a piece of wire connecting these, uh, you know, piece number one to piece number two, that can cause current to flow, and that's what we used to call the ground loop. Um, and the way to prevent that from being a problem is not to connect uh, a current flow ground between those two pieces of gear. That might mean that the shield is only connected at one end, and then those two pieces of gear are really separate wire tied back to the central point. You know, I I had seen this in a lot of places. You know, to me, it, it makes it, it sounds logical that you'd want to connect the ground at both ends. You know, of of a mm-hmm. piece of audio line. But uh, you know, the one thing I learned real early on was. No, no, no! Do not do that. Do not correct, connect ground at both sides. Yeah, if, there's, if there's current flowing between each piece of gear and and the central ground point, then 
once you tie them together, then you've created a, a path of, of current flowing, which then means that the well, that the ground potential is going to be different. The only thing it's, it's just, really hard to do this visually on the radio. I know that's like trying to tell somebody how to tie a shoe. Uh, you know, I, I guess the the thing that was most frustrating to me is I've seen uh, setups where a band would come in and they set up all these multiple amplifiers and whatnot for a concert of some sort. And they're on stage, and then all of a sudden, there's this heinous hum, and it's like it's there's it's like there's no rhyme or reason to it. I mean, you can chase it forever, and yep. uh, I don't know how many places I have been where you know they set the stuff up and they just live with the hum. You know, uh, I don't know where that comes from. I know there's hum switches on amplifiers and all kinds of of things, but uh, I you know I've I've often wondered about that because that's just. It, that's like a nightmare. I mean, that's like the thing that you wake up at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, dreaming that you're trying to get the hum out of a system. And I'm sure you've experienced that because if you've worked with recording and mastering, you've had to have worked with some PA set- setups from time well, to time. Well, yeah, I operated a remote recording truck for many years, too, where we did uh, we interfaced with a live sound of you know major touring acts and, uh, and had to great, get great recordings done. A hundred meters away, um, without affecting in any way what was going on on stage, especially not adding noise to what was on stage. So, uh, yeah, grounding is a certainly an area that I'm 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 probably not speaking very well on, the, on this topic here, but uh, have lots of experience and lots of uh, lots of knowledge about it. And uh, the one thing I'd say is that uh, the typical. Uh, Solution to uh, a live sound thing where there's a lot of hum is to grab one of these little uh, three-pin to two-pin adapters, which is intended to add a ground. People use them as a ground lifter, and that just makes things dangerous. That's how people get electrocuted when you've got an amplifier that's got a, uh, a plug on it, and, and it's humming like crazy, and you do the ground lift thing. And it stops humming. You think, well, that's great. Now we've got the hum problem solved. The issue could very well be that now that amplifier's chassis is not a safe earth, and in fact is elevated by some other piece of gear, and uh, that's where the musician is hanging onto the guitar and goes up to the microphone and gets a spark between his mouth and the mic. Well, the other thing too is you never you never know what's wired in the wall. Now, yeah, uh, you know, I mean, this is uh, this actually happened. We set up to do a live broadcast at the old Ernest Tubb Record Shop mm-hmm. in uh, in downtown Nashville, and uh, <laughs> we had we had a small little wireless transmitter uh, that we were plugging in so that we could anybody in the place could tune it in, or they could tune it in on the FM radio in the front. And that way they could, uh, any, anyone in the store could hear what we were doing. And uh, we were all set up and everything. And my son David went and took the orange extension cord down the hallway to grab some more power so we wouldn't be all on the same circuit. And when he plugged it in, there was the closest thing to an explosion I think I'd ever seen. And uh, it took out the uh, audio console. It took out an audio science sound card inside the computer. And I'm trying to think didn't damage the little transmitter but later we found out the outlet it was just the yeah. outlet was wired incorrectly you never yeah. know i mean you got to almost go through a little tester 
and and check to make sure that the the ground is ground and, and so on and so forth. You're just you're, it's an invitation to a into a disaster. I, I did have that same experience plugging in a remote console for a uh, for a hundred thousand dollar computer audio system, and when I plugged it in, it blew up and took out uh, a lot of the uh, of the computer system with uh, an outlet where the uh, the hot and neutral were reversed on one outlet, and uh, uh, yeah, so there was a there was a grounding issue. Yeah, the gr- the the ground pin on that outlet was actually hot. <laughs> yeah, I just wonder idea. how old how old is that building that the Ernest Tubb Record Shop is in, and how yeah, old? Actually, that- I actually was uh, scheduled to do a recording with my truck there, and it didn't turn out to happen. But I I was prepared for anything. But uh, well, you know, in the recording business now, you you've really uh, you, you've you've done quite a little bit. I mean, you've had a, you just said you had a mobile recording studio uh, set up, and you've also done an awful lot of mastering. Of uh, I mean, that's just you're you've been all over the the music yeah. business in in the Nashville area. Tell us a little bit about some of the stuff, some of the projects you've worked on over the years that folks may be familiar with. Well. Um I would say that the majority of my career has been with um, recording and producing music that people haven't heard about, and uh, and I can say that I've been gainfully employed doing that. So that's a that's a plus. Uh, in the realm of things that people have heard about, um, most of my more more uh, known activities re- revolved around this recording truck, which was uh, one of perhaps a dozen of that capability. Uh, we built it in the mid-'80s and uh, operated it for about 15 years, I guess, and it's, it actually has a life with its new owner now, um, still still going strong. During that period, uh, just being based here in the uh, Mid-South uh, with, with ready access to a lot of uh, markets, um, you know, the freeway system is... Nashville's a great hub. Uh, we did the likes of uh, everything from uh, Pink Floyd and uh, Michael Jackson and Grateful Dead and uh, Gloria Estefan, um, a whole lot of uh, contemporary Christian live recordings as well. And uh, so just all over. Um, gosh, you know, we were just one of, of many... Uh, one of few um, that were doing the many recordings of those days when when live recording was was still being funded by the labels. Nowadays, it's much simpler to do. Don't, some of it doesn't have to be done with a with a rig like we had. But um, so I, you know, I've just I've just been at it, trying to do as much work as I could all my life, and uh, as a result, I've I've uh, engineered literally thousands of records. So. Thousands of albums, actually, over the over the course of the career, most of which are obscure. But uh, you know, I can I can name drop a few anyway. You know, I, I guess uh, my question is this: <laughs> Okay, is it just me, or is there something wrong with much of the music on CD today? Um, I would completely agree that uh, there's something wrong with much of it. Um, I, I mean, I, I hear stuff, and, and you know, some of the artists are really talented. I mean, they really are. 
and, uh, and and the people that are in the studio with the instruments, they're all very talented as well. But it just seems like uh, you know everything is is mastered just straight to the wall, uh, right? You know, if it's not clipped, it's you know it's just right on the verge of clipping. It it reminds me of running a razor blade across your skin just to the point where you're not breaking the skin. If you follow what I'm saying, in other words, what's I the like that analogy? Yeah. What is the point? I mean, what what are they trying to do? Well, you're gonna you're gonna end up with me on a soapbox here before you know it. So be careful. <laughs> um, back in the '60s, when when I was first involved in recording and trying to get things on on the radio, um, and we were doing you know 45s, mono 45s. Uh, those, that's a seven inch disc with a song on it for those who are young. Um, if we could process it in such a way that it sounded louder than the tune before or after, it might have gotten more notice. And of course, the radio stations, if they were able to sound louder, and this is amplitude modulation radio stations, uh, if they were able to sound louder by modulating more of the time but not clipping, if their average modulation was higher, then as you're tuning across the dial in your uh, tube radio in the car, one would sound louder than the other, and so you might listen to it so they could sell more ads because more people were listening to them, so forth and so on. So that's the beginning of the loudness uh, crave was to, was to make more money and to have a larger, larger audience. Um, then through... Through a period of time, the quality of recording got better. The dynamic range available from from distorted to noise, that dynamic range increased. And now with digital, it's it's an awesome uh, amount of uh, of uh, range available. But the same same rules apply. That if it sounds louder, it gets noticed and. Um, driven by by the marketing people uh, at record labels. They've asked the mastering engineers to make records sound louder and louder. And we call this the loudness wars. Uh, and there, there are many, many companies who have created uh, all variety of compressors and limiters, i.e., parenthesis, uh, automatic volume controls, to make things sound louder without actually clipping, without going into clipping. And then, of course, it's just, with digital, it's just fine. You can go ahead and clip away if you want and camouflage the clipping with some other signal process. All of this is to make the thing sound louder. And uh, those of us in my camp uh, really reject the whole concept because uh, we have this great uh, recording medium now that, digital processes and so forth that we can preserve the dynamic range and make music alive as if it is not uh, totally processed. But uh, the commercial markets continue to want to have things that are loud. So my goal now in mastering is to uh, try to somehow catch both uh, viewpoints and, and create something that isn't what we would call squashed, or or uh, <laughs> your razor blade analogy is great. 
it isn't completely distorted or in your face, and yet um, sounds loud enough to be acceptable in the marketplace. So it's a it's a real complicated game uh, involving uh, digital signal processing of the beyond anything that we we have in ham radio. Um, I guess it's it's sort of uh, divert back to what you said about. Uh, the music that's available now. Uh, most of us that are producing music now have a set of, of audio tools that are in the realm of what people might experience with Photoshop for pictures. We have those kind of tools and beyond for audio. So we can fabricate music, um, you know, like you can fabricate an image in Photoshop uh, or, or its equivalent. In the audio realm, we have those same kind of tools dealing with digital audio, so we can fabricate music. And so um, the standards are, are just really high that people expect things to be perfectly in tune and perfectly rhythmically together and so forth, and loud and bright and fat and all those things because we have the tools. And somewhere along the line, people have to remember that it's art music and comes from within you know the musician's heart and somehow that has to be in kept so that's the yeah, goal. I, yeah, i've often wondered how much we infringe on uh on that uh f- for example i wonder what it would be like uh to go through a, an old recording of someone um and i'm trying to think of it, name an artist that that typically would fall uh, consistently sharp or flat of the note that they were singing, but it, it, it got to the point where it was a style more than it was a... Um, I'm, I'm trying to think of somebody right offhand. I know what I'm, I know what I'm thinking about. Oh, I, I agree with you, and I, I'm not coming up with a name either, but I know what you're saying. Well, well to some degree, Johnny Cash was like that. I mean, he, he yeah. wasn't exactly... Uh, you know, when he would... He wasn't exactly on on a note dead center every time perfect like you would expect a... That he communicated. Yeah, and but the thing of it is, is I wonder what what would have been lost if everyone would have went in and and you know exacted, pitch corrected everything that he ever did. I, I think it would have destroyed the entire character of the recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, On the other hand, there are some some artists that I've listened to. You know, <laughs> I know old, where you're going to go now. Artists who were so good at at pitch and rhythm and and uh, you know delivering a take in one one pass without editing and everything it just oh i thought i thought i thought you were going to tell me on the other hand there's some artists that if you didn't pitch correct you wouldn't want to buy the cd so oh well that that is certainly the case as well and i won't name names on that one but it's certainly out there how do they do the pitch correcting though let's say you got a, a person that's uh that's coming along and all of a sudden they're doing fine all, all of a sudden they're just off i mean they just it just you know and so they do 10 or 15 takes, and every time they do, there's a different part of the recording that's off. Is it possible to, to bring that, that person right into... Uh, uh, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Very definitely. There's, there are two predominant uh, pieces of software that do that um, in, in amazing precision with amazing choices of, um, of how much they affect the uh, the final outcome. You, I mean, you can add vibrato, you can uh, pitch correct precisely or loosely, and you can humanize it. And there's just on and on. Uh, it's all. That's what I'm saying. It's really deep, 
and so that's a that's software that is used on virtually every recording that's made commercially nowadays. Oh, I, I can recall. I mean, I I can go back because you know I played records on air as a disc jockey, and I and I and you know I would be fascinated. I guess maybe that's the engineer inside of me. I would be fascinated by the uh, by the production. You know how the person mic'd everything. You know, as an example, uh, if you've got a really decent stereo system, and when I say decent stereo system, I'm not talking about necessarily the you know the real high end stuff. But I mean, I'm I'm working with some old vintage equipment. You know, I've got a pair of Snell Type A's and a pair of Dalquist DQ10s, and I won't get rid of these things. That for some reason they just sound good. You know. Um, and uh, I've even got a pair of old Acoustat three panels. I don't know if you're familiar with any of those speakers at all. They really go back a ways. But mm-hmm. uh, and I, I own a I don't own a top end turntable. I've got a, a Rega a P3. I think with an Elise cartridge in it or something like that. And I um, I don't know if it's the Elise or the exact. But anyways, uh, I uh, I can put on an old vinyl recording. Uh, and and, I, and let's just talk country music for a minute. I mean, let's talk about a George Jones album or a Tammy Wynette album, something produced by Billy Sherrill. And, um, man, I mean, you can hear all the instruments. The instruments sound natural. Uh, you know, there's a lot of innovative licks that are put into, the, in, into that old music, very identifiable, but so pleasant to listen to. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden, you know, you're hearing... You're hearing like twin rhythm guitars, one on right channel, one on left channel, you know, and it, it just it just sounds cool. Then you pop on a CD of one of these artists today, and it's like, yeah, the music is there, but you can't enjoy it. It's just not enjoyable. It's just, you, you know, it, it you feel like somebody just grabbed your head and pushed your face right straight into the wall, you know, and turned the volume all the way up and said, listen to this, you know. And that's, I mean, and, and you, it's just, you realize the musician part of it is there. The person is an excellent vocalist. The people that are picking are doing a great job. But it's just, like I said, you know, grab me by the back of the head and push my face into the wall. You know, and, and that's how I feel listening to that stuff. Now, you're listening to QSO, and our guest is Gary Hedden, W8JFP. Recording engineer and audio engineer supreme in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be back with Gary right after this. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Here at QSO, we've got something new, and that's a prize closet. 
And we are in the process of filling that prize closet up. And we're going to be telling you on the air some of the items that we've got in the prize closet. If you'd like to win some of these things, we'd love to see you do that. But what you've got to do is send us an email. Go up to the website, tedrandall.com or qsoradioshow.com. And when you go to that website, just simply send us an email. Say hello, tell us where you're listening, how the signal's coming in. If you're listening by podcast, tell us how you have joined this radio show. And then put a little note in there that says, I want to win. And we'll put your name in the hat, and we will have a drawing twice a month, and we're going to be giving away what's in our prize closet. Now, I can't tell you everything that's in there so far, but we'll be posting those items up on the website, and we'll be telling you about them on the air, but don't miss out send us an email and put in that email i want to win and let's see who the lucky winners will be you probably own a cd or an lp mastered by this fella we return now to our interview with gary hedden w8 jfp in nashville tennessee and and i guess you said don't get on a soapbox listen to me (laughs) But do you find that to be the case? I mean, do you migrate to older recordings because some the new stuff is just too disgusting to listen to? I'll, I'll say a several several comments about your last little tirade there. Okay. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, I agree with all of that. Um, and the difference in the old recording and the new recording, there are several that I'll point out. One is that probably in the older recording, um, depending on how old it is, uh, the band was all in the room at the same time and worked out their parts based on each other's perception of each other's part, and they and so they and arrangements and production and all that sort of thing involved a number of of artistic musicians listening to each other and participating in the process. So um, they, their parts complemented each other, and there was space for each. And nowadays, uh, most re- most music is recorded uh, there may be a there may be a session where a band is together a rhythm section is together but then from there on it's one musician at a time um, put into uh, you know, what we call an overdub situation and then it's edited and assembled in in software and placed and so forth and there isn't the, the collaboration of a group of musicians the way it used to be as much in general. Now, in country music, it's, it's probably more so collaborative. Um, you know, certainly young bands and so forth that exist as a band, they, they do that too. But a lot of produced music, I'll call it produced music, is created uh, one track, one musician, one part at a time, and assembled someplace else in a studio. And I do some of that work. Uh, in addition to that, um, say, 20 years ago or 30 years ago, people would sit down and listen to a record. They would, they would stop what they're doing, and they would put on the, you know, an LP and listen to it. Nowadays, in my mind, there's a lot of background music going on where it's just at a low level, and um, it's just, just filler. It's like, you know, like what you'd have in a restaurant or uh, people going on a the road, they, they've got their car stereo on at a low level 
And so the processing that makes it all squashed and the same volume and in your face sounds okay if you play it soft. And, uh, and you hear everything at the same volume if you have your, uh, your volume control set low. So it's not, it's, it's not the enveloping experience that we, we did years ago. And I, and I think there's a, at least a generation or two maybe of folks that just don't have that experience of really uh, focusing their attention on listening to an entire work. It's instead, it's, it's background noise or background activity or something. Of course, with, uh, you know, the digital players, earphones and all that sort of thing, there's a lot of listening done on headphones too, earphones. And, um, uh, consistency is the deal. You, you know, it's it's something that's going all the time. So you want to have it consistent, same volume. And you know, these these uh, digital players even have automatic volume controls in them to make everything sound the same. Well, you know, it's all, so I'm just I'm just opposed to that. I I really when I do listening, it's for uh, it's focused attention. And I, the rest of the time, I like to hear the sound of uh, uh, wind and uh, motor noises and. Natural sound like a dog barking in the background or something. There you go. You know, I, I guess I, <coughs> the uh, the whole thing with um, with MP3s and, and and iPods and Zooms and players um, <clears throat> and headphone listening. You know, when somebody's jogging and someone's in the car, you know, trying to listen to something. Um, I I can understand that to some degree because uh, the one thing the the listener doesn't want to have to do is play around with a volume control. You know, right. you're I'm like, what did he say? I didn't understand that. So um, even with our radio show, we process it, but it's all voice. I mean, this is all voice. There's no music involved here. So we process it only for the convenience of the listener. I mean, although it does tend to get a little in your face at times, it's really aggravating to be across the room listening to something or have on a pair of headphones. And then, you know, a plane goes over, or a loud truck with a muffler passes by or something. And it wipes out whatever you're listening to. So a little bit of processing, you can help that along, and you don't have to deal with, you know, missing out. I like your I like your a little bit of processing statement. That's that's good. That well, yeah, it, it kind of evens things out because every once in a while, I'm I'm in here talking. I turn my head, you know, and I'm off the mic for a second or two or whatever. Uh, and the same thing happens with the person on the other end of the phone. But I think music. We, we've got two different stages of this. We got one stage of music. That's MP3. I want, I'm just going to call it MP3 music. You know, okay. it's you know, it's MP3 yeah. music because we listen to it as you said as background. You know, and we're not listening on high quality headsets. We're not listening on a audiophile stereo system. So we're uh, not really paying attention, right? Either. So it, it's, it, it's that's it's something to fill in the gaps. That's MP3 music. You know, and it's a totally different ball game than sitting down and listening to a very finely produced compact disc on a on a hi-fi system i mean it's a whole different world different completely apples and oranges and i think you're Uh, right and i i deal in the in the realm i'm in i deal with uh quality that's uh at least an order of magnitude beyond cd uh we we, uh, record things at high sample rates and we also record at at double uh what would Call us the uh, direct stream digital. Um, record things with a sampling rate of, of five point six megahertz. So, wow! 
that's it's an entirely different recording system. Well, you know, I, I, you know, we 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 really kind of got off the beaten path. We're a little ways away from amateur radio in the in this conversation, but I find it extremely interesting, especially uh, to talk to somebody on the inside, you know, that knows all these nuances and and whatnot. But you know, I'll tell you, it is really pleasing, and it does make a huge difference, even in MP3 listening. When you run across, and I think this is something that we that folks have really undersold, and that is. Um, uh, I remember I picked up a copy of Absolute Sound at uh, at some point, mm-hmm. and uh, I think the front cover had the picture of an iPod hooked up to a high end hi fi system. <laughs> you know, and I thought, oh no, that that has got to be a sonic horror show. Well, you know what? I connected my Zune uh, up to, uh, and, and that's another thing altogether. I don't want to get on that because I'm currently conducting my own private Microsoft war. Uh, with these people, our, our podcast is up on Zoom, but they keep dropping the graphic off, you know, and and they and they have no tech support. You go up in their forums, you can write a million. You you could write uh, a scathing uh, post up there with tons of profanity in it, and nobody. I mean, not, not that I would, but I'm just saying you could, and it would be undetected by Microsoft for months. <laughs> they don't just don't care, you know. But uh, plugging the Zune into the high-end system, I was really surprised that if I started off with a very, very clean CD and, and ripped it into the system or into the, into the Zune and then plugged it into the high-end system, I was really surprised at the level of quality that's actually there. Um, it surprised me. It was stunning. Um, not perfect. I mean, not like a, a a good solid CD player with a a, a really high quality mastered disc, um, but it was stunning. And uh, so I think a lot of times we really shortchange even the MP3 audio by smashing the daylights out of uh, out of this stuff and and making it sound like uh, you know the proverbial brick wall slamming you in the face. I I really I really believe that, and I. I if anyone is listening, you know, <laughs> I would think that you know take that into consideration the next time they go they go into a, a studio project. And there's a lot more there's a lot more guts there to compressed audio uh, than than what we're allowing. I guess yeah. Would, and well, even within the realm of the MP3, there are sample rate choices you can make, and uh, you know the notch above the standard rate is a better quality sound. Takes twice as much data space but uh, it's certainly better well you know and, and, uh, and you're and you're right on one on one count on you're talking about digital um man the recordings that can be made today uh especially some of the stuff i've heard uh in some of the classical music mm-hmm. uh where you hear a cello recorded and i mean they get all the nuances everything you know uh you can hear you can hear sounds that the bow is making on the strings that you never used to hear before. You can hear the finger work. You can hear the person breathing, you know. And uh, it's an enjoyable listen if, if folks will allow, uh, allow the electronics to do everything that, that's allowed to do. Uh, You're listening to QSO, and our guest is Gary Hedden, W8JFP. Recording engineer and audio engineer supreme in Nashville, Tennessee. We'll be back with Gary right after this. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. 
Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, antimicrobial hand wipes, and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. You probably own a CD or an LP mastered by this fella. We return now to our interview with Gary Hedden, W8JFP in Nashville, Tennessee. And, and I'm sure when, in your work, you probably enjoy <laughs> mastering those types of projects. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate to have a variety of things. That's, that's one nice thing about mastering studio work is I get, I get the, uh, the creative output of many, many great and not-so-great producers and engineers. And so I get a greater variety. That, you know, the number of things that come through here per week is more than somebody just producing one song per week, you know. But uh, this recent classical work, I call it classical because it's, it's uh, traditional instrumentation, you know, acoustic musicians with uh, instruments in their mouth or on their chin or whatever, you know, recorded with microphones in a room. That kind of recording uh, I've been doing a lot of here lately with uh, with the Blair School of Music and uh, having a great time at it. And it's very challenging to, to preserve the uh, incredible perf- performances of, the, of these uh, you know, world-class musicians that are here in, in Nashville doing this very, very difficult material and trying to uh, keep the all the aesthetics in mind. So that's been fun. I, I certainly do my share of, of uh, pop music and, and other forms as well, but this stuff is really challenging and, and uh, really challenges my technical chops as well as my artistic chops. So I, I get a, I, every once in a while, you know, I'll, we'll be I'll be playing something back or whatever, and uh, Matthew or David, one of my two sons, will be there, and I'll stop them and I'll say, now "Listen to this! Listen to this!" These are actual real strings. Okay, <laughs> this is what they sound like. You know, <laughs> yeah, I've been known. To, I've been known to say to uh, folks in the industry that yeah, here in Nashville, we still use microphones to record. <laughs> well, let, let's talk about that. How has your uh, your knowledge of audio uh, affected your approach to ham radio? I'm I'm curious about that. I mean, I understand you and Bob Heil are pretty good friends. Uh, how 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 does that play in? Well, um, in most of my work here uh, in ham realm has been with our two meter repeater system, the W Cares system, and uh, I have a reputation of being willing to report <laughs> folks that have uh, under under modulated, shall we say, under deviated or over deviated audio. Um, uh, poor microphone technique. I've, I've been known to report those things 
because uh, I think we should all have, um, we should all be striving to get the best audio quality out on our communication. Uh, you know, in sideband, if you're in a, sitting in a, a reverberant room and you have the compression cranked way up on your system and <laughs> it might gain way up, sometimes it's really hard to have the same experience that you're speaking of with MP3s. You have the same experience with a, with a distant station who has uh, all of that stuff going on. So I'm I'm one who advocates for uh, for good quality audio at the front end of, of the ham communication as well, and <clears throat> have been known to actually make audio recordings of our net proceedings, and then make them available on CD for the list for the uh, membership to uh, listen to their own signal as compared with others, and to uh, you know I, I make remarks about. Uh, exhaling through the nose into the microphone port of a, of a microphone, which makes it sound like a squelch tail, uh, which is unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, speaking across the mic and holding it properly up close to your mouth and so forth and so on. Um, so I'm, and, and, and setting the game properly and all that. So, yes, I, I have brought that into the ham radio realm. And, um, uh, let me let me give you one of my pet peeves. Um, people are talking sometimes uh, talking about signals being scratchy, and um, that's a pet peeve for me. Uh, scratchy means something different to me than what that person intended. So I think they're meaning that the level is low and it's noisy. Uh, scratchy means uh, distorted or. Uh, Back in the days of vinyl, you know, something wrong with the uh, needle-to-disc surface interface there. But anyway, uh, I digress. I actually, I heard a great expression this morning on the on our repeater. Um, one of the one of the guys, you know, southern southern expressions. I just I just love. One of the guys re- remarked to a, to an incoming signal that uh, there's a lot of sawdust on your signal. That's interesting. <laughs> Isn't that a great description? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I guess you know when people say scratchy on on on, uh, on two meters, especially, I always uh, I, I get the picture of lack of signal. In other words, uh, there's a lack of signal getting into the repeater, and uh, the, the person is not necessarily breaking up, but the noise level well, is just. Yeah, I guess that's what the expression means. I, for me, it doesn't. I have to. I have to reprocess. I have to. To do a lexicon transfer of scratchy to me having to do with distortion and uh, and the person making that statement is talking about signal level. Yeah. Well, one so of the I'm, things. Well, it's my fault on that one. One of the <laughs> things, though, in, in the broadcast business, and that is today, uh, radio has degraded itself to the point where they hire people that are below entry level with no training at all, and so their words get very colorful. I, I remember uh, being told that a radio station sounded tinty. And I thought, what in the world does that mean? So I thought, maybe they really do mean tinny. You know, maybe, uh, you know, you, you think of the old Edison Victrola kind of sound, uh, you know, stainless steel. No, that meter. would be scratchy to me. Yeah, okay. So, <laughs> I, so I, I said, do you mean, no, no, it's got plenty of bass. It's got plenty of bass. I'm thinking, well, how in the world can something sound tinty? What it, you know, but there was never, I could never pin the person down as to what they meant. Now, uh, I, I, do you know Kirk Harnack at all? No, I don't. Okay, Kirk is the, uh, I don't know, he's the head 
marketing, international and otherwise, for Telosomnia. Okay. And, of course, Omnia, I think, makes, if you want to talk about a, a, the ultimate audio processor, they make uh, an incredible uh, FM audio processor for those that, you know, if you... If you want to, you know, the old, you remember the old Maxell commercials uh, or the, the photos of the guy sitting in the chair and his hair's all pinned back, you know, it's like he's in the middle of a windstorm, you know. The Omnia is the loudest thing on the dial. It really is. And if you adjust them properly, they can be very, very loud and still very dynamic, which was something I had never heard until years ago when I drove through New York City. And I thought, what are they doing? I don't understand this, you know. But nonetheless, um, uh, a Kirk was uh, at a radio station somewhere, and the guy says, uh, can you make it sound more blue? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, you know, what in the world are they talking about? Blue. How does something sound blue? I mean, I, and I don't think, Kirk and I never had the conversation. I don't think we ever discussed what the guy actually meant. But you hear a lot of these adjectives. Uh, <laughs> they're just not, yeah, I, have but, a, I have a great one for that. Of course, I've, I've heard this all my life. There's There's been books written with the... Uh, uh, you know the adjective or, or the noun, and then and then the uh, discussion of uh, what that really means. It's, there's quite a number of those um, in the advertising realm. Uh, we have creative directors who are in the studio trying to uh, influence the performance of a musician, and uh, uh, they come up with very interesting uh, descriptions of, of sound as well. Uh, one of my friends was a keyboard player was doing a, uh, a commercial for a well-known um, fish product, canned fish product, and the, uh, uh, in, a, in a moment of frustration, the, uh, the client got on the talkback and just said, just doesn't sound enough like tuna. <laughs> so Make it sound like tuna. With, hmm, I wonder what that means. <laughs> Imagine standing behind the keyboard trying to come up with uh, something that sounds like tuna. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow. That's, <laughs> well, you know, I, I guess the um, uh, you know when I when I was very young, I remember the first time I ever heard FM on or amateur radio FM. Uh, these guys were running these old police Motorola rigs, and they must have had a broader uh, bandwidth or something because I yes. remember going into this guy's shack and there was a person on two meters and it just sounded wonderful i thought wow that sounds so cool and uh one thing that is a little disappointing two meter audio today uh is is very very restrictive at times and uh almost a bit irritating to listen to Uh, i keep you you keep wanting to at least me if there was a control on the rig you want to broaden it out you want to hear a little bit more uh, yeah, and I've often wondered why. I mean, we we obviously have so much spectrum that's not being used. Uh, I mean, there's repeaters everywhere, you know, but you don't hear a whole lot of activity. It'd be kind of nice if there was such a the, the counterpart to the AM amateurs that are on running uh, higher quality audio. It'd be kind of nice if we had that on FM. I think at times maybe the digital modes will provide that to us. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I think that's true. I think. That uh, and I agree with your general comment, but I think that um, uh, in fact I want to do this uh, that a tutorial on microphone technique would help improve that because uh, with, with all of the <clears throat> electret condenser mics that are commonly used with the rigs these days, uh, talking close and uh, 
at, at an acceptable level above the noise, rather than holding it six inches away and shouting, um, those kind of techniques can make a dramatic improvement in the sound, the perceived sound quality at the other end as well. And uh, so, and rigs do sound different. They have different modulation techniques, but uh, we're in, we're pretty narrow. Uh, the deviation is pretty narrow on on FM communication. I'm I'm just constantly uh, striving for better as well. It always amazes me. Uh, speaking of this, uh, to listen to uh, you know the police uh, or emergency dispatchers and their and their audio quality and uh, and even the space shuttle. Uh, Space station audio quality compared to the image quality. It's amazing that we accept such limited and distorted audio in those situations when when the video is fantastic. So I think I think box. I, I think that the police communications people should be required to use these uh, citizens band echo mics. What do you think? <laughs> that would be interesting for sure. They wouldn't need scramblers, you know. They wouldn't need a scrambler. If you're trying to listen to Channel 19 going down the road to truckers, I don't understand half of what they're saying. You know, they've got so much reverb and compression built into those microphones, and then of course there's all the road noise. But somehow those guys are able to decipher that. They're like, you'll you're hear a guy. Confess, you're confessing that you listen to those things. I, well, you know, I, I'll tell you what. Going down the road, sometimes you know, you you may you know, if, if your life depended on it. Uh, you'd be in bad shape if you were trying to find somebody on a two-meter repeater system somewhere. Yeah, uh, true. Uh, so, I mean, I, I listen a little bit on the road to, to Citizens Band. I mean, I and I, I can't, sometimes I enjoy it, you know. Uh, but then there's that business where you hear the guys, and the other guys, and you say, what in the world are they saying? And, of course, there's all the echo behind it, you know. And, uh, boy, there's a, there's a market for Bob Heil. Man, I'll tell you what, you know, uh, ought to have some... Uh, Ought to have some audio seminars and, and, and some decent microphones placed on Citizens Band. I think those guys would enjoy it even more, although they seem to really get a bang out of these echo mics. Uh, it just seems. Let me, let me, let me introduce a uh, correction to content as well here, just for a second. Uh, I've never met Bob Heil. So really? Not, we're not well acquainted, but I, I certainly would like to. But, uh, well, I, our that, paths have never crossed in that well, realm. You, you guys definitely should meet because. Uh, <laughs> but I, I thought for some reason I don't know. But see, I get things all twisted up at times. I, you know, I somewhere along the line that's been stuck in my head. And two weeks from now, I'll probably say the same thing. You know, probably, oh yeah, you and Bob are good friends. You know? um, once something gets stuck in my head for whatever reason it is, it seems to remain there, regardless of how inaccurate the information is. <laughs> but. Uh, Bob has really changed the face of ham radio, and that is, I think he brought kind of a consciousness to uh, to folks in regards to, if if nothing else, you know, to focus on the audio a little bit, mm-hmm. and to understand that you know your receiver may sound great and the guy on the other end may sound great, but that doesn't mean that you sound so good, you know. Well, and, the other thing is, we just we we never as, as hams we don't have that immediate feedback to know what we do sound like we're, we're always just a, it's a, when we're transmitting it's it is a one-way street at that point and um so that's where i feel like you know making recordings and and make, distributing them back so people can hear is a good idea so you know that <laughs> we can rely on uh on critique of our friends uh you know like this mic sounds better than that mic but we really don't 
normally have the opportunity to hear what it sounds like at the other end. Well, you know, I'll tell you something else. That, uh, that there's there's a drastic communica- thing with, with communications audio because years ago guys would use D-104s with those big, massive crystal elements inside them. Mm-hmm. And I know guys that would actually go in and pull the fiberglass out of them to get that extra little <laughs> a little sizzle out of the things, you know. And, uh, but, and, and those microphones, uh, oddly enough, or I would say communications audio, I want to call it, at times is really more appropriate than trying to make something sound hi-fi, you know, right. on the air. Uh, right. and, and there's other times when you're in a QSO with someone, you're talking over a long period of time, that that audio uh, give you a headache, you know, after a while. Or as uh, Chip Margelli would say, it sounds like a person's shorts are too tight. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, the, the one thing I was going to bring up, and this is something I've noticed in broadcast radio, in ham radio especially, but in broadcast radio it's very prevalent, uh, and that is that the younger people that have had no training at all, and I mean zero training, people do not know how to use a microphone. You had brought this up before. We were talking here, just and, and it's. But this is like a major, major deal. Uh, people have no idea what consonant sounds do when they're up close to a microphone. Right. Uh, they have no idea where to pace themselves in terms of, you know, do I talk across the front of the mic? Everybody's voice is different. And one thing we discovered with AM broadcast radio is the difference between positive and negative peaks. You know, one guy's mm-hmm. voice will be really hot on positive peaks. Another guy's voice is very, very hot on negative peaks. And we found that if we invert uh, the uh, the waveform, the voice at times will become more pleasing. You know, and uh, matter of fact, I think it was uh, it was Automax. Who who was it? Uh, CBS made this uh, processor that had a relay inside of it. It would actually flip the audio back and forth. And uh, a lot of us guys would get on the air, and you could manipulate it with your voice. So you could be talking, and you could make it flip one way and flip back, you know. And you'd get to the point, it was just, you'd play with it while you were talking. It got to be really aggravating, because you would do it, you couldn't stop doing it. <laughs> you know, it was just really crazy. I mean, these guys would be doing a newscast, and they'd have a long stretch, and they'd be playing with that relay, using their voice to flip it and invert it back and forth and back and forth. Um but let's, for a moment, talk a little bit about amateur radio and microphone technique. Uh, you were talking about the guys that breathe into the microphone. I've heard this a number of times. Of course, they don't realize they're doing that because, once again, you can't hear yourself. Uh, yeah. But give us some pointers. You've worked in a studio a long time. and uh, uh, what, well, what? First, I guess I, 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 and I need to probably wrap this up in a, fairly soon here. Um, but first thing to do is to identify where the where the port on the microphone is, and behind that would be the what typically is an electret condenser mic element. Um, so if you're you know if you're, if you're talking about a handheld mic, there's there's a little hole in it somewhere, which is the entrance for the for the sound. Um, I would not want to have that near my nostrils, near the <laughs> side of my mouth. So typically, when I when I'm holding a, a a mic for a handheld unit or for an HT, um, I guess my my index finger and middle finger kind of end up below my nose a little bit, and I hold the microphone 
to the side of my mouth so that the plosives don't go into that port directly, but but the audio from from right about where your lips meet at the side of your mouth, that's a good place to have audio quality. And I try to put that spot near the port of the microphone. And, you know, within the within a half an inch or so, I speak softer, perhaps, than some. Um, and I adjust the mic gain so that it isn't clipping or over-deviating or over-compressing. But basically, that's the thing. If you, if you want to have the minimum amount of of uh, exterior noise getting in and also to have minimum amount of breathing and other sounds, the ideal place is right at the corner of your mouth and put that near the port of the microphone element. So that usually means that you're kind of speaking across the speaker part of uh, the mic or the or the DTMF uh, pad. You're probably speaking across that uh, while positioning that port near near the corner of your mouth. That'd be my counsel in a general in a general sense. Uh, if you're if you're in a uh, base station with a with a desk mic, then um, same kind of deal. I think is it, you don't want to speak right up on it directly. You want to be just a little bit off uh, off axis and uh, try to keep your, your exhaling noise of your nose from getting into the microphone. And I suppose some of the mics. Uh, I'm actually not worked with with Bob's mics that much, uh, you know. At your <laughs> radio station uh, live show at Huntsville, I, I saw some of them, but uh, there may be ports for making a cardioid pattern, uh, directional pattern. There may be uh, rear ports on the microphone, uh, you know, slots. And you don't want to breathe into those either, because that that gives a path right back into the microphone element as well. So that's the general. Word, I guess. Um, I didn't know if there was it, anything then it else. Comes out of specific microphones uh, and and how best to work with those. So uh, I, I was going to say the uh, I, I was I was curious. Other than that, uh, not necessarily talking directly head on into the microphone, but talking across the mic sometimes, mm-hmm. especially if you tend to work a microphone close. Uh, if you talk across it instead of directly into it, it stops a lot of the explosive sounds. Right. Uh, and of course, yeah. There's a there's a low frequency plosives are are big waves that come come primarily out the front of your mouth, and if you can uh, can miss those with a mic, uh, that's better off. <laughs> um, I I don't want to I don't want to keep you too long. I I do want to ask though about your grandson. And tell tell us a little bit about that because we we haven't touched on that and that that's very important. <laughs> yes, I, I I was thinking about that earlier too that we needed to mention that. Well, he's uh, he's approaching his eleventh birthday uh, in a couple of months. Um, he's lived with us actually from from birth, uh, and uh, so this is. We're his, we're his grandfolks, and and uh, but he's he's lived with us, and and uh, so he's had a chance to watch what goes on with me, and uh, being the primary male influence in his life, of course, he in some ways wants to be like me. Uh, he probably experienced that. Some of our listeners have probably experienced that. So anyway, he became interested in in amateur radio, and 
I just I have to take my hat off again for the W Cares, our, our local areas group, encouraging young people. And we've had we do a, a, a an annual class that gets people ready to take their technician test, and we have fourteen um, licensed amateurs in our group who are um, let's say under the age of thirteen, I believe, or maybe maybe. It's at least that many. Um, so young Christopher was interested in getting his his license, but uh, is he's a high energy kind of fellow and has many interests in getting him to focus long enough to to prepare for a test that required uh, you know weeks of preparation was difficult. He we uh, attended the the W Cares class for technician and he got bored in it. So, uh, in my mind, I, I thought, well, he loves to play computer games and gets really wrapped up in those. So let me let me buy him a uh, Hamtest Online membership. I'll give him a couple of years to get his tech license, and he can do that more as a game. And I like that program because there is uh, there is information as well as testing in it. You can actually get the content as well as the as the multiple choice questions, you know. So I, I worked with him a little bit, but basically he did it on his own with that program, and I'm just thrilled. I didn't think he was prepared enough when we went to Huntsville a couple of weeks ago, but he wanted to take the test. I said, well, sure. Fully prepared to counsel him on how to deal with disappointment of failure. <laughs> and... Uh, there he came back with a beaming smile and the, and the certificate that he had passed. So, uh, uh, and he's already talking about wanting to study for his general. And my my role, of course, is to it's important to get the license, but it's more important now to teach him what he really doesn't understand fully, and uh, to get him the right the right terminology and procedures, protocol, and all the rest of it. Make sure he has a good foundation of uh, technical knowledge as well. And it's hard. As a 10-year-old, it's hard to, to get that. But I'm working on it. And uh, again, the support of the old-timers in our group has been awesome. And uh, they, they just let him be himself on the repeater and and encourage and, and congratulate and all that sort of thing. And, and I think that's terrific because whatever you know, probably know what the mean age of ham operators is, and it's not 10 <laughs> you know, and you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. That, that's another pet peeve of mine: a soapbox I don't want to get on. And that is, you know, I, I get so frustrated when I hear a young person on a repeater, and I I hear the uh, curmudgeons, uh, you know, get all sideways. You know, well, it's just nothing but kids on these things anymore. You know, uh, and I it just it just drives me nuts because. You know, we need these. We need these young people, and if nothing else, they really motivate uh, the older guys. You know, to you know, to, to have a little bit more energy, a little spring in the step, and a smile. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think they bring life to ham radio when you hear yeah. young people on the air, especially if you get a group of them together talking. Uh, it's it's a whole different world. Yeah. And uh, I, I was fortunate enough. Uh, growing up, in, in that at least I had other hams my age that I could converse with, and, and and today that's more difficult than ever 
because you go to a ham fest and look around and it and it's there's no young people there hardly you know and we're getting to the point where it's where it's becoming criminal <laughs> well uh, that, that's that, i agree with you and that's where you know we we need to encourage the young and then we need to uh sensitively uh, instruct them and, and bring them along. And that's what happened with us. Well, I'm really high on, on the uh, on the ham test online uh, situation. Those guys really have it knocked. I mean, they know what to do. And have you met Pi, the the uh, proprietor? No, I haven't. And But I think the program is just, just, and I work with software all the time with every aspect of my life, and I just think it's a fantastic program, just. It's not expensive either. Incredible. I mean, it's very, very affordable. I mean, a lot of folks say, well, yeah, well, I can do that free. No, you can't. <laughs> no, you well, can't. That's how I got prepared for my extra exam, and uh, I only missed one. And, uh, you know, it brought, brought out some of my double E training from years ago. But, uh, boy, it just, it said, you're weak in this spot. Do this again. <laughs> you know, it's like a, a very carefully uh, uh schooled tutor that takes you through it and uh, keeps track of what you need to work on. And I, I just think it was fantastic. A lot of people don't realize, too, and that is that you could, you could really be an excellent RF engineer and not be able to pass a test. <laughs> it's, you know, you, know, te- you know, doing the test is a different thing. It really is. I mean, it's supposed to relate, and it does relate, but it doesn't always. That You know, a lot of folks that are very, very apt in the world of electronics are very poor uh, in terms of being able to sit down and and take a written exam, and uh, especially with young people because they move at such a pace today between the video games and all the other stuff that they're involved in, all the computer stuff, uh, they're just moving faster. And, so, and like you said, you take someone that's eleven years old and put them in the typical amateur radio uh, training class, and they're going to be sitting there twiddling their thumbs, playing with a pencil or the ink pen, drawing doodads on the paper. And wondering when is this going to be over with, you know, uh, because it, it's just very, uh, you know, because and, and most of the time the classes are being taught by some old guy like me or you, you know, <laughs> so, so we're, we're not keep, we're, we can't keep up with those guys, you know, and uh, boy, ham test online just flat does the job. Uh, Gary, I want to say thank you so much for uh, for being on board with us today and talking about uh, your well, I, I want to say um, wonderful recording career in, in, in uh, uh, the, the mastering business, all that kind of stuff. I really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us and talking. We'll have to have, to have you back because there's still we, – we, <laughs> well, we can talk another – It's my pleasure, and I, and I would love to be invited back. Uh, we could go on for days probably about these topics. So oh, absolutely. Do it again sometime. Thank you so much for coming on, and I look forward to talking to you again real soon. Okay. Take care, Ted. H1N1. If you haven't given it much thought, you need to start now. Go to h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Look at the menu and go to H1N1 Flu Tracker Map USA. You can see exactly where the H1N1 virus is breaking out. It may be in your community already. You can order the Flu Blocker Influenza Kits today. They contain all the necessary personal protection, equipment to help guard against the spread of the influenza virus within your work, home, and school environment. These kits contain fever strips, a protective N95 mask, disinfectant surface wipe, 
antimicrobial hand wipes and a tissue pack. Look for our note on the top of the page that says, as advertised, on Radio Disclosure and the Amateur Radio QSO Show. That is your assurance to get the highest quality flu blocker influenza kits today. The H1N1 virus is here, so don't delay. Order your kits today at h1n1kits.us. That's h1n1kits.us. Well, that's going to do it for QSO today. Be sure and tune in next week. Same time, same station for QSO.